910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. In the last episode, we began a series called Women in Scripture. We began by looking at the first two chapters of the book of Esther. In this episode, we continue with chapters three and four. Rose, why don't you get us started today? I will. So right at the beginning of chapter three, we're introduced to someone new, Haman the Agagite, who King Xerxes promotes to a position above all of his other officials. And like you mentioned in part one, if you don't know the backstory of Haman's relatives and the Jews who are Mordecai's relatives, you miss out on some important issues that are going on. You do. And to fill in that backstory, Haman, the man we're talking about in the narrative of Esther, is a distant relative of the Amalekites. That's a people group who attacked the Israelites when Moses was leading them out of Egypt towards the promised land. This was long before Haman's time, but what his ancestors did was totally unjust. It was. The assault on the Israelites was completely unprovoked. They attacked them from the rear, cutting off those who were lagging behind when they were weary and worn out, according to Deuteronomy 25:18. So basically, they killed the weakest, most tired, and sickest of the Jews. And because the Amalekites did that, God was angry, and he decided to punish them. He told his people, When the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies— meaning after he'd settled the Israelites in the promised land, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So fast forward to the time of King Saul, Israel's first king. King Saul is the one God commands to be his agent to punish the Amalekites. He commands King Saul to wipe the Amalekites out. In 1 Samuel 15, 3, the Lord says to Saul through the prophet Samuel, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Those are pretty tough words to hear, no doubt. And they're even tougher to obey, I'm sure. But we need to understand that this is God's judgment on a wicked pagan people. He would not and could not overlook their sin, especially since it was against his people. Chris, as tough as this passage is to read, this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Jesus is going to separate his people from everyone else. Matthew chapter 25 shows us this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then I'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Chris, the story of the Amalekites and these verses in Matthew are hard verses, but this is what we all deserve. And for those of us who have been saved by Christ, this should bring us to our knees in gratitude. I agree. If you read the passage in 1 Samuel, you'll see that King Saul didn't have a problem with the directive from God. He understood it was God's judgment on the Amalekites and that his sovereign creator, God, had every right to punish him. So the problem isn't that Saul had a moral issue with obeying God, but there is a problem. There is a problem. Saul's problem is that he's greedy. Saul doesn't fully obey God. Instead, he lets some of the Amalekites escape, which we find out later in Israel's history. And he brings back to camp alive King Agog and the best of the animals and other things that had value. He doesn't spare the people and the animals because he feels sorry for them. 
That's obvious because he does kill most of the people and he only brings back the best of the animals and goods. He spares them because he wants to own them. When he's confronted by the prophet Samuel about his disobedience, though, King Saul gives a really bogus reason for it. Yeah, he tries to defend himself by claiming that he followed the Lord's command to destroy everything, but his troops didn't listen because they wanted to bring some of the best things back in order to devote them or to sacrifice them to the Lord. What a great commander. He blames his troops that he's in charge of, and then he tries to justify their actions by saying they were, quote-unquote, doing it for the Lord. You know, Chris, it's easy to roll our eyes at King Saul and the Israelites and think they're a disgrace. They can't even obey a clear command from God. But, you know, we can find ourselves doing the same type of thing sometimes. We can be doing something we know we shouldn't be doing, something we know that's disobedient to what God's word says, and then we try and make up for it by doing extra work for the church, giving extra money, or maybe having a super pious attitude to cover up for the fact that we've sinned. But trying to make up for our sin by doing extra credit is never pleasing to God. No, it's not. And if we find ourselves thinking that way, we should heed the answer that King Saul gets from Samuel. He tells him, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. King Saul had only partially destroyed the Amalekites and their stuff. The sacrifices of the spared animals could never make up for that. Because partial obedience is not obedience. No, it is not. And getting back to the book of Esther, we see that Saul's sin is still bringing consequences on the Jews. This is the tension that we see between Haman the Agagite, who is the descendant of the Amalekites, and Mordecai, who's the Jew. Yep, at the end of Esther chapter 2, Mordecai the Jew finds out about a plot to take the king's life, and he warns the king in time, but he's never rewarded for it. And like we said last time, not getting rewarded for saving the king's life would have been unusual in that time or probably in any time. And as God so often does, something opposite of what we think should happen happens. Haman gets promoted by the king to the top of the food chain, just under Xerxes. You know, there's something interesting in this part of the narrative. What's that? Esther 3 verse 2 says, And all of the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. It would have been a given that you bowed down to the second highest man in the kingdom. But the king had to command the people to do so. That kind of shows me that Haman must not have been a very likable person, and even the king knew that. So I guess he commanded the people to show Haman respect. I'm wondering if he hadn't commanded it, if a lot of people would have refused to bow to him. I wonder that too. But since the king does command it, everyone bows down to Haman. I mean, almost everyone. Everyone except one. And then the problem starts. They sure do. Now Haman has all the king's servants bowing down to him because the king commanded them to, but who doesn't? Mordecai. Mordecai defies the king's command and refuses to bow to Haman. You know, there's some differing opinions as to whether Mordecai is right in not obeying the king's command. And we're not told specifically why he refused to, but if Mordecai had bowed down, the whole story would have been different. And you know what else I think is funny about this whole bowing down thing? Haman, as prideful as he is, doesn't even realize it himself that Mordecai isn't bowing. He has to be told by others. And when they tell him that, they also tell him that Mordecai is a Jew. And when he's told that, he's angry. And not just at Mordecai. He's angry at all the Jews. He wants them all dead. So he goes to the king and he proposes the idea that all of the Jews throughout the land be destroyed. He even offers to pay the king to let him do it. He basically lies to the king to get this done. He tells him that this group of people is scattered all throughout the kingdom and that they don't keep the king's laws. 
However, it's only Mordecai that we're told isn't keeping the king's law in this instance. And he also tells the king that it would be to his profit to obliterate him. That was probably far from the truth if you consider the large number of people the king would lose in taxation. What Haman doesn't realize, though, is that Queen Esther's a Jew, and the king doesn't know it either. And he gives Haman the right to do whatever he seems best with the Jews of the land. Haman sends a copy of the decree to tell all the people in the land to be ready for that day to kill and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, according to Esther 3, verses 13 and 14. This isn't scheduled to happen right away. It's probably about 11 months later. And the people in the city of Susa, we're told by the Bible, are perplexed by this order. Well, the Jewish people had been living amongst them for a long time. And although there were more enemies in the land than just Haman and his family, as we see later in the book, not everyone in the land hated the Jewish people. Can you imagine being told that there's a day set 11 months from now that you and others are supposed to kill a group of people who have been your neighbors and friends, or at the very least have been familiar faces in your town that you've seen your whole life? No, I can't. It reminds me of how the German citizens who hid or helped their fellow Jewish citizens must have felt during the Holocaust. I mean, some of them must have been perplexed by what was happening. Of course, Mordecai learns about the edict, probably pretty quickly, and the Bible says he put on sackcloth and ashes, which were signs of mourning, and he went to the king's gate to cry out. He couldn't enter dressed the way he was, but he got the attention of the people who got word to Queen Esther. And Esther doesn't try to find out what's going wrong at first. She just tries to make everything seem okay or seem normal by sending her cousin clothes to put on. Right. And we do this sometimes, don't we? We try to ignore what's really happening and just make everything seem fine. Yeah, we do. But eventually she sees that that's not working. And she sends her eunuch, Hathach, to find out what's wrong with Mordecai. The eunuchs were men who survived a very horrible and excruciating procedure of castration. And it was actually more than just castration. And they afterwards could serve in the king's harems. Rose I remember when we taught Esther as a Bible study, and you described that procedure. But we're not going to do that here. No, we won't. It's a little too brutal, but you're welcome to Google it. Yeah, you can Google it if you're so minded. But anyway, so Hathach the eunuch goes to Mordecai, and then back to Esther, and he tells her what's going on. And not only that, Hathach tells her that her cousin Mordecai wants her to go to the king and beg and plead with him on behalf of the people. This wasn't something to be taken lightly. Esther knew that unless the king summoned you to come before him, you were risking your life. If someone went before the king without being summoned, one of two things happened. Either they were going to be killed or the king was going to hold out his golden scepter towards them, which meant that he was sparing their life and they could approach him. The Jewish historian Josephus says, Around the throne of Xerxes stood men with axes to kill those who came without being summoned. And King Xerxes hadn't called for Esther to come to him for 30 days. I imagine she probably didn't feel too confident. She might have felt the king wasn't interested in her anymore. I probably would have thought, oh, great. This is happening now instead of two months ago when he wanted to see me. But God's timing isn't often our timing. No, it certainly isn't. And Esther didn't immediately say she would do it. Christians, especially women, sometimes put Esther on a pedestal or tend to romanticize her story. But she basically tells her cousin she doesn't want to because the king hasn't called her. She's in full self-preservation mode. She is. And Mordecai basically scolds her for it. He says to her, 
Don't think that just because you're in the king's palace, you're any safer than the rest of us. If you won't help, deliverance for the Jews will come from another place, but you and your family will perish. And then he says what's probably the most famous line from the book of Esther, and that is, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai knows that God will deliver his covenant people, either through Esther or through someone or something else. He sees the necessity of God intervening to save him, so he's confident it's going to happen. But his statement, and who knows, maybe you're here for such a time as this, shows that Mordecai doesn't know how those plans are going to unfold. Mordecai is just explaining to Esther that maybe God has providentially ordered the events of her life to put her in position to act on behalf of the Jews. So he's encouraging her to act with courage and faith. We don't know the steps we're supposed to take in advance. It's only looking back that we see how the plans unfolded. We do not know what God has decreed for the future, and we call that God's decretive will. We don't know how he's providentially working with his creation to have those plans unfold. But the Bible is clear that God ordains, meaning that he orders, decrees, and destines the means to the ends as well as the ends of human events, and he does it without violating human freedom and responsibility. So Esther has a choice to make. She sure does. And her cousin has just reminded her of the position she holds and that she might have been put there for this very purpose. There's no guarantee here. Esther doesn't have a magic eight ball that gives her divine answers. She has no way of knowing God's decretive will for her life any more than anybody else on the planet does. Because we can't know that. You're right. There's no magic eight ball. And what we see from the text is that Esther doesn't fret or worry about what God's will is for her future. And she doesn't ask for a sign and she doesn't ask for a signal. She makes up her mind to do the godly thing and try to save her people. And she commits herself and others to fasting, which, as you said before, included prayer for the Jews. And she does all this before she goes to the king. Esther has resigned herself that it's better to be obedient than disobedient. It's better to trust that God may work through her than to sit back and do nothing. She knows whose hands her life is truly resting in, so she's able to step out in faith. What her cousin Mordecai said to her was good advice for all of us. Just like Esther, we are also where we are, have what we have, live where we live, work where we work, etc., because God has placed us here. Acts 17.26 says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. There's no more ideal place for you to serve right now than the place where he's already put you. And Chris, that's what Mordecai's basically telling her. God put you here maybe for this purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Esther could have been walking straight into her death. Like we said before, there's no guarantees. Just because we make a choice that's morally right, that's godly, or that's biblical, doesn't guarantee we'll be physically safe or that our efforts will be used by God in the way that we hope they will be. And it doesn't guarantee that nothing bad from an earthly perspective will happen to us. Rose, I think this is a really important point to clarify because I know a lot of people don't believe this. But what you're saying is that just because we do something good, even something that would be God glorifying, and we do it as much as our sinful hearts can for his glory alone, doesn't guarantee success 
and it doesn't even guarantee our safety. Exactly. But we step out in faith anyway, and we do these things because it's the right thing to do. And that leads us right into the end of the fourth chapter of Esther. After asking her cousin to gather all the Jews in the city of Susa for three nights of fasting, Esther's last statement is, Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. She doesn't ask for a sign, she doesn't put out a fleece, and she doesn't fret and worry. She commits herself to fasting, which we know from other places in the Bible involved prayer, for three days, and she asks other people to fast during that time too. And then she sets her face toward the task, knowing and trusting who is in charge of all that happens, and trusting him to do with her efforts whatever he does. That reminds me of Luke 9, 62, where Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus said a lot about not having divided interests. In other words, not serving two masters, God and yourself. This is a definite cost of following Jesus. There is. But as we say all the time, Rose, he's worth it. And I think that just about wraps up chapters three and four and our time for today. It does. Join us next episode for part three to find out what happens to Queen Esther, Mordecai, and Haman. We hope you're enjoying our series, Women in Scripture, so far, and this teaching from the book of Esther. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review us on Apple or through whatever platform you're listening on. And please feel free to leave questions, feedback, and comments. We'd love to hear from you. Have a blessed day.